I'll be reading from Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we come this morning to the sixth letter, and finally a city to uh, one that we recognize, actually, the city of Philadelphia, although probably not the, uh, uh, the first Philadelphia that comes to mind this morning. But if you've been with us for the last six weeks as a part of this study and in looking at these churches, I, I think you probably agree uh, that this has been a, a good study for us to participate in as a church to to look at these churches in Asia Minor and seeing the care the detailed care that Christ has for his individual churches you see this personalized interest that he gives throughout for his people right we've seen him encourage and and rebuke and and even warn his churches and here's the the real gift We've gotten to see in Jesus' own words what he sees as significant. What he sees as, as commendable or even worth judgment. So it's a gift in the sense that, that we don't have to guess what he sees as worthy of print, whether that be good or whether that be bad. Jesus it is so clear that he is committed to sanctifying his people. Is it not clear? He gave his life for these churches. He was nailed to a cross for these congregations. And according to Ephesians 5, on the last day, he will present them in glorious splendor. And they will be holy and without blemish. But not yet. Right? Not yet. And so in light of that coming day, these letters make sense. They're part of the church's sanctification. They're, they're part of Christ's covenant's sanctification. Jesus wants her to keep clinging to Christ. To keep trusting and holding to the gospel. To persevere. To persevere to the end, even through great trial 
And so Jesus takes the time to to dictate these seven letters to seven historical churches. These places actually existed as we've been reminded each week. The church that we'll study today, most believe, has remained in existence up until right now. So before we look at this letter itself, keep this in mind. These words that that, that Joel just read, these words have been preserved for us this morning to consider our own church. To consider how we function together in light of Philadelphia. Remember, Jesus didn't tell John to take the letter and and seal it in an envelope and, and deliver it there to Philadelphia, right? He says, write these things in a book. Distribute it to the churches. These things are to be read aloud in the, 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 the presence of his people. So these words are for us this morning, which is why John says at the very beginning of his book, blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in this prophecy. Blessed are they for the time is near. And so just as John has ended each of his letters even including this to Philadelphia, he who has an ear, he says, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And may we have ears and hearts ready to receive this truth from him this morning. If you're not looking there already, I invite you just to turn to Revelation chapter 3, 7 through 13. I want you to see these words as we consider them tailor-made to Philadelphia. It's interesting to note that this church is one of only two churches that received absolutely no rebuke from Christ. Can you name the other one? What's the other church that that received no rebuke? Smyrna, right? So here, just like with Smyrna, here in Philadelphia, there's no warning, no criticism for this church. We've seen that that John has not shied away from criticism for his churches, right? For Christ's churches. But here, for Philadelphia, only honor, and especially promises. Lots of encouraging promises are woven through this rich letter that we'll see this morning. So to help us organize the content of this letter in your minds this morning, I, I want to provide three very simple pegs. will help us follow along. Three simple pl- pegs that I, I think really reveal the structure of this letter that Jesus dictates. It really provides a, a beautiful portrait of Jesus as you carefully re- read through it. So especially in light of these promises to Philadelphia, the first peg that we'll consider is the promiser. The promiser. Here we're going to see that this entire letter provides and and points to an image of Jesus Christ. A beautiful image of the one making these promises to Philadelphia. And so we want to look carefully at that image. We want to take time to see this Christ, especially as he is stamped all over this letter from beginning to end. Look at the promiser. And secondly, we want to look at the promisees. That is, the ones who are receiving the promise, the promised ones. And this is obvious due to the the salutation that we read. This is Philadelphia, of course. But what about them? 
What is it that gains Christ's attention and honor here? It would be good for us to, to consider and to know. Especially as we gather as one of His churches. And then the third peg, finally we'll look at the promises themselves. We want to see how Philadelphia, this church, and other faithful churches will be rewarded for their endurance. For their clinging to Christ. Listen, by by holding out these promises as Jesus does, he whets their appetite to what is ahead for them. He's helping them persevere. And so notice first the promiser. It's very telling that at the beginning of each letter, we have a brief but pointed description of Jesus. You notice that, right? Nathaniel prayed those openers this morning. You can scan back through chapters 1 and 2 and and see those at the very start of each letter. But not only that, we also see that these these pointed descriptions to this point in the book have all been pulled from that initial vision from John in in Revelation 1. Every single one of them to this point. You can't take time to read them all, but if you just scan back through, you'll, you'll see that. But when we get to this letter... When we get to Philadelphia, that's that's not the case. Instead, we read here in verse 7, the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. When you look back at chapter 1, you won't find that description anywhere. To begin this letter, Jesus intentionally reaches back to the Old Testament, grabbing specific Old Testament titles reserved for God alone. And Jesus uses these Old Testament words and descriptions to describe himself and even to quote from Isaiah in introducing himself to those who would read this letter. Now, if you're Looking closely, as an aside, you will see in chapter 1, you'll see the little phrase, keys of death and Hades. And then in the letter, you see the key of David. So there, there is a tie to this preceding vision. But as has been the case with all of the other letters, there are no direct quotations from the vision. There is no substance that we see there from this opening vision and letter. Jesus has a purpose here for Philadelphia in crafting this unique introduction. I think it should be obvious to us at this point in studying these letters that these openers are by no means filler, right? They're not throwaway words. This is not an obligatory introduction that Jesus gives. It's true that with with a regular letter, we might be tempted to hurry to the meat or the the body of the letter to see what actually is being said, to get to the main point, perhaps. But Jesus' self-description here, we have to notice, in this letter and in all these letters, is very intentional. And as we're about to see, is the main point. So this abbreviated bio in in verse 7 adds rich detail that we dare not skip over. It unmistakably points us to Christ. It gives us another glimpse or an angle of Jesus that we need to think about. Notice, 
Philadelphia was about to hear and receive the words of the Holy One, the True One. The definite article is before and precedes both of these titles, so we don't underestimate. Jesus is the Holy One. He is the True One. There is no one else. There's no one else that merits these descriptors. Reserved for God and God alone, and, and Jesus grabs these titles and and describes himself with them. For Jesus to, to do this, to describe himself like this, would have, would have still sounded foreign, even for many of his followers. These were distinct titles of divinity reserved for Yahweh, reserved for the God of Israel. And in fact, this title, the Holy One, is used to describe God over 20 times in the book of Isaiah where most of this imagery in this letter is taken from. The only other time in the New Testament where we see these phrases put together, the the true one and the holy one, is Revelation 6, and it is a clear description of God himself. And so John is the author of Revelation, as he has made it clear, as clear as he possibly can to this point in the book, Jesus, the Holy One, is God. And as the Holy One, he he is completely pure. Think about that title. He's completely pure, fully righteous, set apart in every way from sin and unto his Father. Jesus, as is described in the next chapter, is without spot, the perfect Lamb of God, unstained from any pollutant, regardless of how one looks for it in Him. This is Jesus. He cannot, nor does He, overlook sin. He is perfectly other, and John makes this clear. He is the Holy One. He's also the True One. Philadelphia, you're, you're about to read the words that, that can be fully trusted. You won't have to doubt what you're about to hear. Because Jesus alone is true in the sense that that He is the genuine one. He's completely reliable and sincere without error. Even this morning, this this true and holy one deserves our thought and our attention. Our detailed and intentional worship. He is the holy and the true one. He cannot fail. As we read further in verse 7, he also has the key of David who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. When I first read that, I thought, great, uh, another riddle that I've got to try to figure out for this sermon. It, It sounds like that, doesn't it? Who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, who shuts and no one opens. But this is a an exact quote from Isaiah chapter 22. In Isaiah 22, we we meet this guy named Eliakim, who is clearly given supreme authority over the house of Israel. We won't take the time to look at it, but just listen to Isaiah chapter 22. God says this, In this day, I will call my servant Eliakim. He says he's going to clothe him with, with a gown of authority. And then in verse 22, he says this, And I will place on on Eliakim, on his shoulder, the key of the house of David. He shall open and no one shall shut. And he shall shut and no one shall open. Almost verbatim to what we see in this letter. 
Jesus refers back to this Old Testament text and says, this points to me. Eliakim was was really a picture of what I was going to do. So in this letter, verse 7, Jesus says, I am the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, who shuts and no one opens. I am the one with this authority to let in and to keep out, to open and to shut. Just as Eliakim had, had clear say concerning who entered the house of David, so Jesus has clear authority over who enters the kingdom of God. He holds the key. And just thinking about this full description of Christ, you you can't help but sense and to see the sovereign, authoritative reign of a king. The one we are called to follow is the holy and true one. And so it is with with sovereign authority and covenant love that Jesus reminds his church. See it there in verse 8. Behold, Philadelphia, I have set before you an open door which no one will shut. He can do that. He alone can do that. The one who has this key of David has has paved a way for this church into the kingdom of God. He's opened the door. Even for us this morning, this is good news to read. This is good news for those in, in need of a Savior. For those who might be considering Christianity this morning. Is this the Jesus you know? The one with complete access to God's kingdom? Are you drawn to this powerful king and yet compassionate savior? Even as followers of Jesus this morning, as we we see and consider this, this short description of him, how can we honor him in the way that he truly deserves. He calls for our our worship and our affection. He calls for our attention that that we are rare to give. As the author of this intentional letter to his people, Jesus is the, the great promiser. Secondly, let's, let's look more closely at the promises in this letter. What, what kind of church in this lineup of churches gets no negative press? What draws only praise and, and promises of and from its head? He knows their works. Jesus has said he walks among his churches. He knows them. There's, there's no chance of, of fooling Christ. So everything that Christ says of Philadelphia here is is completely right. It's, it's true. So what are those characteristics of this church? Again, look at verse 8. He starts out the same way that he has every letter. There's, there's such um, clarity and, and, and organization in these letters. He says, I know your works. 
But here, what he knows about Philadelphia is that they have but little power or little strength. This church does not seem to have any real significance, especially as you compare it against the backdrop of the Roman Empire or even the the Jewish synagogue that was there in Philadelphia. No, No meaningful significance to speak of. The best that we can tell as we study this church is that it's it's small, seemingly insignificant assembly by human standards. And yet, these two small but weighty words, and yet, Jesus says, as weak as you are, Philadelphia, and you are, I know that you are, but as weak as you are, you are You are strong because you keep my word and you have not denied my name. It's no guess to say that this church has had experienced great trial and even persecution, physically and and spiritually both. From ancient history, as we read, we know that this area in particular had undergone massive and, and multiple earthquakes during this century such that the first century historian, Strabo, I think that's maybe how you pronounce his name, maybe you've heard of him, but, but he stated that, that the walls of Philadelphia were constantly being cracked from the tremors and aftershock of the major earthquake in 17 AD. The devastation you can read about is, is very well documented. But the people of this area and during this time lived in constant fear, we're told. Architectural plans were made with earthquakes in mind. It was was well known that Philadelphians conducted their business during the day there in the city, but but many of them lived outside the city walls at night for fear of of destruction. It was also no secret that Christians were beginning to experience steady scorn and even persecution at this time not only from the irreligious, but also from the church, the synagogue of, of Satan that we'll see later, this, the Jewish community. And yet right in the middle of a society completely bent against Christ, this small group of believers is called out. It's recognized because they have kept my word and have not denied my name. Can you hear the strength called out in that compliment? Jesus says, I know you have but little power. And yet, here is what I have observed in you. Here is what I see about you. Jesus repeats that same compliment. You can look down in verse 10. You have kept my word about patient endurance. Philadelphia, you you have listened to what I have told you, that in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, Philadelphia. Hold on. I have overcome the world. Again, in in reading through this letter, the, the language clearly points to the external pressures that must have been felt there by this church. Even just the phrases, they have but little power. They have to endure. They can't deny. They, they, they had felt the press on account of knowing Christ. 
trials that, that surely are, existed, but we don't see here in detail, were on account of loyalty to Christ. That, that is what Jesus says here about this church. Even though weak and perhaps insignificant to many, you've been faithful to keep my word. You've been ready to, to speak up on account of my name. And I've watched that happen, says Jesus. At its core, this, this idea seems to be this. You may not grab anyone's attention with your significance or, or your accomplishments. In fact, no one may even know who you are. You have but little power, I know that. But you look to me. You're patiently enduring, he says. Keeping my word and not denying my name when it makes sense to do so. That's the church that that gets only positive press from the head of the church. These are the Philadelphians. What an example for us to, to think about and to follow. They value what Christ says. They're loyal to Him. We know that this, if you, if you think, you, you know this church is not perfect, right? There is no perfect church. But this church was, was faithfully, faithfully following what Christ's desire is for a church. The significance of this, this call out by Jesus is really worth our meditation today. I think if we were to take 20 minutes even this morning just to to break into groups and to brainstorm what would a a championship church look like? What is it that we would describe about this church? We would come up with a lot of very, very good things. A church that's involved with evangelism and and a church that is involved in discipleship and, and, and ministering to the poor. So many good and healthy things for churches to do, but I think this passage just calls us to, to pause for just a moment. I think in, in light of this letter, we must, we must ask ourselves, are we walking and growing in the areas that, that he highlights? As we've seen very clearly, Jesus is not afraid to reveal uh, the disappointment in his churches. We've studied that. We've seen that. But, but here, Jesus graciously commends His people. He encourages them. He, he holds them up for all to see. And In fact, he says, he says, write this stuff down about Philadelphia. This church is listening to Christ and His Word. They're running the, the difficult race with just plodding endurance. And Jesus notices that. We should too. In one sense, what he says about Philadelphia is, is profound, especially when you consider the, the difficult day in which they lived. Difficult culture, probably not too dissimilar to ours. But in another real sense, Jesus here is recognizing them simply because they are being the church. Right? Right? 
He highlights them. He mentions their names because they're living like a, like a body of forgiven and repenting believers in Christ. A community of saints. Jesus says, I know you and I'm, I'm pleased because you, you're obeying me. You honor me as I have asked you to. No doubt there are hundreds of different thoughts and applications that we could think through here. As individuals, as, as we have, have opportunity to obey Christ and to, to stand on account of His Word, to, to speak a name or to speak for the name of Christ to a, a co-worker. There, there's lots of areas. I just challenge you to, to examine yourselves in light of this text, even today. And could it be said of Christ's covenant church and us as individuals who make up this body that we are faithful to Christ and His truth? That we don't shy away from being known as one of His? May God help us to value the words and the name of this Jesus. So we see the promiser, the first peg. The, we see the promises and, and finally we want to consider the actual promises here. If, if you just let your eyes scan down verses 9 through 12, you, you should see starting in, in verse 9 the words, I will make. And then in verse 10, I will keep. Verse 12, I will make. And again, I will write. In all, there are seven promises in this letter. We'll, we'll just highlight four of them briefly this morning. The first promise is there in verse 9. I will make, look at the verse, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. It's this particular promise that seems to indicate that there might be difficulty there with the Jewish community. Whenever you see a phrase like synagogue of Satan, that's often a dead giveaway, right? That there might be some issues going on there. Jesus doesn't mince words with this description. Just like with the Pharisees, Jesus refers to these these, uh, Israelites as children of Satan. A far cry from calling them the chosen people of God. What What is going on here? fact, Jesus says if, if these religious Israelites claim to be Jews, and even if they are ethnically, they, they are lying. Why? Because clearly they have, they have rejected Jesus, the Messiah. The one that their scriptures were pointing to. Remember, outward Jewishness, as, as far as a standing before God, outward Jewishness meant Nothing. In fact, Paul makes it clear in in Romans 2, just listen to this, this brief verse, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. Even, even Moses back in Deuteronomy 30 pointed this out. The majority of the Jewish population remained convinced that they were the true people of God because of who they were and because of their strict keeping of the Mosaic law. 
In fact, they scoffed at those who claimed otherwise. They didn't need inward change or a a spiritual savior. They scoffed at this idea, continuing to trust in their own goodness and in fact persecuting the church. It's, It's very clear. We see that. Anyone who admitted or stated that they had a need for Christ, there was persecution. And Jesus refers to them as the synagogue of Satan. But Jesus comforts Philadelphia by promising vindication. Your faith, he says, will be validated. And in fact, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. And they will know that I have loved you. Jesus promises vindication for faithfulness to him. For the scoffing that you have received, the persecution that you've endured, Philadelphia, the enemies of the church will gloat today at your expense, but but they will not triumph. Know that. We don't know exactly what this will look like. promiser says there's there's coming a time there's coming a day when they will see for themselves my reign and my unmistakable love for you just before moving on i think it's worth just noting that that jesus is the one making this promise he's not in any, any way telling his church to to gloat or to force your enemies to bow down as if we could do that Vengeance is his, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, not ours. The call still remains for us to to lay down our lives in love for our enemies. In fact, to bless those who curse, knowing that ultimate vindication will come from Jesus himself for those who hang on. So Jesus promises vindication Notice as well, he promises protection. He says in verse 10, I will keep. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, Philadelphia, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. What in the world? This verse has raised no shortage of of questions as to exactly what is being said here. What is meant by this? What is this hour of trial that he refers to? Has it already taken place? How will Philadelphia be protected since the promise seems to be tied to to their endurance, to their faithfulness? Or is this completely a, a future protection for all of his churches who persevere? When we come to verses like this that I am so thankful that we have an elder of eschatology, an elder of last things, Ray Rutledge. And he will be up here at the front to to answer any and all of your questions. Thank you, Ray. Appreciate it. Without completely just just guessing here or punting, it is clear that, that Jesus promises protection from a a specific trial or testing for his people. This hour of trial, he says, that is coming on the the whole world is particularly meant as judgment for those who dwell 
on the earth. You see that phrase in verse 10. This phrase for earth dwellers is is a term, really a technical term, that is always used to describe those who, who reject God. Always used to describe unbelievers. So there's a judgment. There's a trial that is coming. Some have taken this verse to mean that Christ is promising to to take the church completely out of this coming hour of trial. So he will keep you from the hour by by removing you from the earth, by a physical removal, namely taking the church to heaven. Some take that position. And this is a possible understanding of the language here. As you can interpret keep from in this, this verse as to keep out or to take out. So that is possible. Many would would disagree, however, with that understanding and would point to the ongoing tribulation that has been promised, the ongoing suffering and, and trial that is clear that the church will undergo, pointing to this ongoing trial even here in the book of Revelation. It has existed since Christ's return back to heaven. Clearly not much as far as persecution or, or tribulation and suffering here on our soil, but, but certainly this would be the case around the globe. We're told that tribulation will exist and even intensify before Christ comes back. and In fact, we're to expect it. And so others conclude that Jesus is promising to keep the Christians, and particularly Philadelphia, since that's who the promise is to, to keep them through this hour of trial, perhaps even through this trial that that will occur during their lifetime. Not removing them necessarily from it, but keeping them through it. Some take that position. But it seems more likely that, that with the global nature of this event, This is something in the future. This is a future time of of increased tribulation before Christ returns. That's what it seems here. And that Christ promises his people, Philadelphia included, that they will be kept through this testing as opposed to be taken out of it. It's interesting, and I think in favor of that understanding, the only other time that the phrase keep from or, or keep out is used in the New Testament. It's used by Jesus as he prays in John 17 and he says this, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from. There's the phrase. You keep them from the evil one. I know much more could be said here. Um, just remember questions about the judgment day. We'll go to Ray. What we do know for sure from this letter is that, that Christ promises future and ongoing protection for his church. He says clearly, I will keep you from the hour of trial because you have kept my word about patient endurance. And even those who will lose their lives here on earth, and, and we're told there will be many, and there have been many. But Christ will keep them, protecting them to the end, and they will live with him forever. Christ promises vindication. He promises 
protection. We're just going to note very briefly these last two promises in verse 12. Notice, I will make and I will write. Christ promises for this church a permanence for his people. Verse 12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. Philadelphia, you you will be a temple. You will be a pillar in the temple of my God. Those who persevere by faith, you you will have a permanent dwelling with God in his temple. The place where he lives. Keep this in your mind. If you read on in Revelation, we're reminded that, that, that the temple will not be physical. It's not going to be a, a structure because the dwelling place of God, the temple, will now be with man. And so Christ uses this metaphor to promise a permanent home in the presence of God. That promise is repeated at the end of the book when he says, He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Jesus said, write this down in the book for churches to read. I want them to look forward to this day, to this promise. No more will they be strangers and pilgrims in this land without a home. but They will be permanently dwelling with me. Imagine how this would have hit this first church in Philadelphia. Especially those who had likely grown accustomed to impermanence. No roots. A small and struggling church living often in fear and and perhaps somewhat as, as nomadic. But never will you have to go out again, he says. For us this morning, doesn't it seem increasingly so and increasingly true that we are aliens and strangers on this earth, in this culture? I know we feel that. We follow the mindset of the church mentioned in Hebrews who even joyfully accepted the plundering of their own property since they knew and looked ahead, they had a better possession and an abiding one. They they too were looking ahead to this eternal dwelling with God Himself. It's what we should think about and contemplate. Jesus continues, we'll, we'll close with this, but He says, I will write on you the name of my God. I will write on you the city of my God and my own new name. There's going to be no doubt of my love for you. There's going to be no doubt that you belong to me. I I won't be ashamed, Jesus says, to claim you as my own. I, I, I print my name on you. Let no one mistake, my children, that I have purchased you. And I will honor you by claiming you forever. Hold on, he says, to this thought. Look ahead to that day and keep believing. It's just ahead, Philadelphia. Followers of Christ, you you may have but little strength, 
But Jesus promises in this short but loaded letter, your faith will be validated. It will be evident that I have loved you. My children, I promise that I will protect you. I will make you pillars. I'll claim you as my own. Think to that day. It's promised here. Let's just finish by noting verse 11. I'm coming soon, he says. So hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Hold on, he says. You have kept, verse 8. You have kept, verse 10. Now keep. I'm coming for you. Hold on. This word is for us. This word is for us. This word, hold fast, Christ covenant. Encourage each other to hold fast. As we close, listen to this word to the Hebrews. They seem to understand well the people of Philadelphia. Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. My righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed we are those who have faith and preserve their souls. May God give us the faith to cling to his promises and to be found faithful to the end. Let's take a moment just to contemplate these words in this letter to Philadelphia.